Prestige heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, and my friend and comrade Derek Davison is finally back from his long, dark tea time of the soul, and we are excited to bring you the news. I've been changed. I'm not the same person I was before before it started. Yeah, you'll be able to tell. You hear the joy, the sort of bubbliness in Derek's yeah, voice coming through me. The ease with which he approaches the world, it's pouring Absolutely. through him. If only you could see him now. Derek, let's start with a nice little depressing story, the United Nations Global Poverty Report. Uh, yes, a new report from the UN Development Program, which estimates that over the last three years, about 165 million people around the world have been driven into poverty. Uh, obviously, you would prefer to be lifted out of poverty. Uh, the big factors here are, of course, COVID, uh, inflation, the war in Ukraine. The Washington Post wrote a story about this. I think one of the key takeaways here is the crushing load of debt that much of the developing world is dealing with, which uh, is preventing governments from allocating resources toward helping people, essentially. According to the Post, about 3.3 billion people now live in countries that spend more on debt finance, interest payments, than they're able to spend on programs like education and education or healthcare or uh, other things like that. This is obviously stripping social safety nets. It is also uh, engendering instability as people get tired of governments that can't do anything to help them. And the governments themselves, whether they would be inclined to do so or not, are unable because they owe so much money to foreign creditors. It's unsustainable to continue on like this, and yet uh, the developed world doesn't show much interest in doing anything about it. The U.S., for example, is more interested in blaming China for trapping nations in, in this debt conundrum, uh, when in fact it's still Western, largely Western private lenders who control the majority of this debt and could be pressured to do something about it. But we don't like to do that with Western private lenders. We'd rather just complain about China. And I like good complaining, but this is uh, pretty, pretty bad. And let's go from bad to I don't want to say worse, but bad to also really bad. And let's talk about the climate. Yes. Uh, if you've uh, been outside anywhere across much of North America, Europe or Asia in the last couple of weeks, you've probably noticed it's kind of warm out there. Uh, apparently, according to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, June was the fastest warming month on record. If you felt like June was seriously hot, it wasn't just you. Newly released data confirms that this June was the planet's hottest June on record, dating back to 1940. Uh, and July may be setting up or may have been set up at this point to be even faster. Uh, so there are massive heat waves striking, as I said, much of those those three continents. Uh, the Persian Gulf International Airport in Iran on Sunday reported a heat index of somewhere around 67 degrees Celsius, which is 152 Fahrenheit if you're on that scale. This is the result of El Nino partly, but it's also the result of continued spewing of carbon into the atmosphere since the last time we saw an El Nino, which was a few years ago. 
Among the concerns here, in addition to just the survivability of many of these regions, uh, are the economic impacts that this, uh, if this is the new normal, which it seems like it may be, what the what that's going to mean economically. And, you know, to go back to the first story we talked about, how much of that uh, economic burden is going to fall on countries that already can't m- meet the needs of their people uh, for a variety of reasons. Of course, we don't want to talk about that either because uh, Western nations in particular don't want to talk about uh, anything that sounds like or smells like climate reparations uh, for all the uh, carbon spewing that we did before we really uh, started to notice the problem. Uh, so yeah, again, just another uh, not good global story. Sorry to sorry to start everybody off on a couple of bummers here, but this is uh, this is where we're at. Still, everyone, I just want to inform you, Derek is still floating. He is just zen now. He is encased in a bubble of goo. So so don't worry about that. <laughs> Uh, Let's talk about another uh, awesome story, Uh, the United Nation ending its Syrian Syrian aid operation. Yes, the UN's cross-border aid operation into northern Syria, on which uh, a large number of displaced Syrians in particular depend, uh, these are the rebel-held or Turkish-held, depending on your point of view, parts of northern Syria. Uh, That cross-border aid operation, which was coming in from Turkey, through a single border crossing into Syria has come to an end. The UN Security Council on Monday failed to renew its mandate at the behest primarily of Russia. The Russian government has been threatening for really years now uh, to get rid of this operation because it argues that it violates the Syrian government's sovereignty and that aid should come through Damascus, uh, of course, Technically, Damascus is still at war with the groups that are in charge of these these regions or control these regions. So that's not that's easier said than done. But there was a proposal on the table to renew the mandate for nine months, which the Russian government vetoed. They then proposed a six month renewal that was voted down by the council. Uh, most members abstained and it just didn't get the the requisite number of votes. Then the Syrian government has offered under its own auspices, to reopen the same border crossing. But the UN has uh, expressed some concern about the conditions that are attached to that offer. So it remains to be seen whether that will uh, that will manifest. But again, hundreds of thousands, potentially, of people depend on the aid that comes through this corridor. So uh, uh, it is unfortunate to see uh, the operation end. Let's move on to Sudan. Yes. So there's not terribly much to update here. I know we've been away for a couple of weeks. The conflict seems to be mostly unchanged, except in the uh, severity of it. I'll get to that in a a minute. But there is a bit of a development, or there was a bit of a development over the weekend. The Sudanese military apparently sent representatives back to Jeddah in, in Saudi Arabia to resume ceasefire talks. Now, you may recall that these talks were halted a few weeks ago. There's They've been brokered by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. They were halted due to pretty much uh, complete lack of success. But there's been no alternative channel that has emerged since then. And it's been uh, somewhat uncomfortable, I think, for many people observing this conflict that, that they're just not talking at all now. Uh, so this, as I say, the Sudanese military sent representatives back to Jeddah. I haven't seen any indication, however, as to whether the rapid support forces, uh, their rival, have sent anybody to Jeddah. So I don't think the talks have be begun again. Uh, this is maybe just a gesture by the military. Now, as I say, the conflict itself in Sudan seems to be just sort of continuing as it was the last time we talked about it. The, the RSF kind of takes 
and holds small pockets in the capital uh, the Sudanese military, which is not great at ground fighting, cedes territory and then carries out airstrikes and you know uh, that sort of thing to try and drive the RSF out to not great success, it seems, but to fairly high casualties and disruption. One thing I will note, uh, there was a piece in, again, the Washington Post this week, citing refugees from Darfur, uh, where there's been it's been very difficult to get steady news out of the most of the r- reporting related to this conflict still comes out of Khartoum and its uh, its sister cities at the the confluence of the Nile rivers. But what the the people coming out of Darfur and now in refugee camps uh, in I believe Chad mostly uh, are saying is that they see a lot of similarities. Uh, at least the ones who remember the Darfur genocide from 20 years ago see a lot of similarities between what's happening now and what's, what happened then. And, and there are, the, the, the conflict kind of breaks along the same lines. Uh, the RSF was created out of the Arab tribes that perpetrated that genocide against the non-Arab peoples of Darfur uh, and still has a support network in Darfur among those tribes. Uh, so it's not terribly surprising, but it is very disconcerting to see this kind of talk. Has the U.S. done anything? I know, other than I mean, there's been some, there's been a few sanctions. They, they, I think, held off on sanctions, uh, on broad sanctions, because of the the peace talks in Jeddah, because they were sponsoring these ceasefire talks in Jeddah, and they didn't want to disrupt that diplomacy. But you know, after that broke down, I was sort of expecting to see some immediate sanctions come out. Not that that would do anything. To, to solve the problem, but that's typically what the U.S. does. I have not seen that. Now, again, I know, you know, admittedly, I've been on vacation, so I haven't been paying as close attention as I probably should be. But uh, I haven't seen any mass sanctions uh, so far. So really, no, I think the U.S. is, you know, sort of just observing right now. And maybe we'll get get involved again in Jeddah if that really is, is if that process is really going to get started again. Thank you, Derek. Um, and everyone, just so you should know, Derek has actually ascended to another plane of existence, and I'm just talking to his <laughs> head right now. It's a it's a light. There's a there's a I'm a light being now. I'm a thief. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the protests in Peru. Yes, there are new protests this week uh, against the interim. I guess interim still Peruvian government. Uh, President Dina Boluarte. Uh, regular listeners will know that. There was a major round of protests uh, against Boluarte and her government earlier this year. Uh, this all follows the ouster of Pedro Castillo, the former president of Peru, uh, late last year, So, uh, which engendered a lot of uh, hostility, especially in southern Peru and among indigenous communities. The new protests that have kicked off this week, they started, I believe, uh, on Wednesday in Lima. There are other protests that are going on in sort of the Andean regions of the country, which again, uh, sort of the, the southern mining centers, more a little more indigenous population, a little more impoverished. Uh, these typically are where the, the protests have taken place. I haven't seen much on this. Again, it just started Wednesday. There were reports of police, you know, massive police presence in Lima, uh, the use of tear gas and other uh, crowd control measures. Uh, but I think this is something that, that, bears observation, given the violent response the police had to these protests earlier this year and the uh, the potential for violence here. Boluarte referred to the protests in advance uh, as a threat to democracy, which is somewhat 
interesting under the circumstances, given that she's an unelected president. But that, I think, is a is a signal that she's going to give security forces to the extent that Boluarte actually is in charge here, which is a whole nother uh, thing to consider. But to the extent that she is in charge, I think uh, indicates that she's going to take the gloves off or tell the security for tell her security forces to take the gloves off and, and do what they want, which is probably going to involve uh, a lot of abuses and a lot of casualties. So Derek, someone did what we've been talking about for a long time, and that is defect to North Korea. So what's been going on there? <laughs> Yeah, I've I've been you know considering this for a while. I didn't, uh, I haven't taken advantage of it. But uh, there's a couple of North Korea stories, as you say. A U.S. soldier, uh, a guy named Travis King, apparently ran across the demilitarized zone into North Korea uh, on Tuesday. Uh, was unsurprisingly detained by the North Korean uh, military, North Korean security personnel. I'm not entirely clear on his story, but apparently he'd been arrested by South Korean authorities. Uh, and was about to be sent back to the U.S. for some kind of disciplinary action, and I guess was hoping to avoid that. I'm not sure running into North Korea is the way to solve your problems, but uh, that's what he decided to do. Uh, there's been no contact, uh, apparently, even as of uh, Thursday, according to the U.S. government at least, there's been no contact from North Korea about this guy, uh, his status, or, or you know, they've made inquiries apparently, but uh, they haven't gotten any information back from Pyongyang. The other story from, from North Korea of note uh, is uh, the North Koreans fired off a couple more ballistic missiles on Wednesday morning, short-range ballistic missiles that were apparently fired off in response to the arrival of a U.S. ballistic missile submarine, the Kentucky, to South Korea on Tuesday. This is the first time that the U.S. Navy has deployed a ballistic missile submarine, which is capable of firing nuclear weapons. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it was armed with nuclear weapons at the time, but it's the first time that we've deployed, the U.S. has deployed such a vessel to South Korea since 1981. The North Koreans said, or North Korea's defense minister, Kang Sun Nam, said on Thursday that uh, this could meet the legal conditions under which Pyongyang would be justified in launching its own nuclear weapons. Uh, I guess it's South Korea and or the U.S. So that's that's a cherry thought. Uh, I don't think they're going to do that, obviously, but uh, certainly uh, an indication that that p- sending that sub there was a, uh, uh, a seen as a provocation by the North Koreans. Let's talk about Russia. Uh, Russia has canceled its Black Sea grain deal. Derek, what's been going on with that? Uh, yes, the uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative was uh, scheduled to run out uh, on its most recent uh, renewal was scheduled to run out this week, and Monday was sort of the 11th hour. The Russian government declined to renew the mandate. Moscow has suspended its participation in the critical Black Sea grain deal. It notified Turkey, Ukraine, and the U.N. this morning that it is against extending the deal, which was due to expire today. The agreement, brokered last July, allowed for the safe export of Ukrainian grain into the global market, helping to stabilize food prices. The Kremlin says it is willing to return to the deal, but has certain demands that need to be met. So this has been coming for a while. Moscow has insisted that it's not getting uh, any benefits from the deal. It's supposed to receive uh, protection for its own agricultural exports. It's supposed to get, uh, you know, it, it wants at least for its the, the Russian Agricultural Bank to be reconnected to the SWIFT network. Uh, this is something the U.S. in particular has has not been willing to do. 
what this means is there's no longer any guarantee of safe passage for cargo ships that enter the Black Sea ostensibly to to take on Ukrainian grain and then go back out into the Mediterranean from there on to, to other places. Uh, so th- there's unlikely to be any ships that are willing to make that passage. The Russians have already threatened to treat any cargo ships that enter the Black Sea bound for a Ukrainian-controlled port as uh, basically military targets, as though they're carrying military equipment. Uh, the Ukrainians have threatened to do the same to Russian ships that enter the Black Sea heading for Russian-controlled ports. Uh, I'm not sure how much of a threat that really is, but uh, you know it's sort of a mutual thing at this point. Global wheat prices rose uh, around 3% on Monday, just in the immediate aftermath uh, of the, the news that the deal had not been renewed. They've continued. Uh, they've they leveled off a little bit, but I think they've they've started to rise again since then. I don't have uh, figures on it, but uh, there are any a number of countries around the world that depend quite heavily on Ukrainian grain exports. Uh, humanitarian relief organizations that work in places like the Horn of Africa uh, and the Middle East also rely on, to some degree, on Ukrainian grain exports. So these things are all going to be. Uh, affected. It's going to be a struggle to find alternative food sources. There have been efforts made, and as I say, the Russians have threatened over and over again to not renew this uh, initiative. So there's been some planning for contingencies. The Ukrainians have been expanding their ports on the Danube River, and they're talking about dredging some parts of the Danube to allow greater uh, grain shipments that way. Uh, there have been overland shipments through the European Union. That's been a sore spot for a number of uh, neighboring countries who don't like having all that Ukrainian grain come in because it, it uh, kind of undercuts their own farmers. But those countries, there are five of them in sort of Central and Eastern Europe block uh, that ha- they have agreed apparently to to allow transit through their uh, their territory, but not for. Uh, any imports into their own of Ukrainian grain into their own countries. Um, so overland routes will continue, but this is unlikely to replace the lost capacity now that these Black Sea shipments are, are no longer a viable option. And Putin has also decided to skip the BRICS summit. Uh, Derek, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so Vladimir Putin was scheduled to appear at next month's BRICS summit in South Africa. Now, uh, the reason that this is an issue is that Putin, as you all probably know, is under indictment from the International Criminal Court. South Africa is an ICC member state. And so legally, technically, it would be under obligation if Putin arrived there to arrest him and cart him off to The Hague. Uh, Obviously, the South African government is not going to arrest Vladimir Putin and send him off to The Hague. Uh, and so South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has been considering options for, you know, what what could he do to avoid this uncomfortable situation? Uh, at one point, there was some talk that he would ask China to take over hosting duties. The Chinese government is not subject to the ICC. And then there was, you know, just some consideration that Ramaphosa wouldn't just would ignore the ICC and let Putin arrive and uh, not arrest him. That's similar to, to something that happened several years ago when the then president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, came to South Africa for, I think, an, I think it was an African Union summit um, and was under indictment from the ICC and the South Africans just ignored it. He didn't want to do that either because that, that's uncomfortable. It's not good for South Africa's global image. And so he's apparently 
convinced Putin now, uh, they announced this week, not to attend the summit. The other heads of uh, the other leaders of the other four nations will be there. Uh, but Putin is going to skip. I don't know who he's going to send, probably his prime minister. But so that that saves Ramaphosa some embarrassment, some potential on, you know, potentially uncomfortable situation. Thanks, Eric. Uh, now, the Wagner Group has arrived in Belarus. What do we know about that? Yeah, there's been like an on and off again thing. Like, are they there? Are they not there? There's been some uncertainty about where Wagner uh, and its leadership actually have been for the last several weeks since their kind of stymied out mutiny and their subsequent dismissal from Russia. But video posted Wednesday to one of the Wagner Group's Telegram channels shows Yevgeny Prigozhin, the owner, boss of the Wagner Group, in his first apparent public appearance since the mutiny, uh, welcoming a large group of Wagner fighters to their new home in Belarus. He makes some ominous-sounding comments about only being in Belarus for a short period of time and then heading off to Africa. I don't know if they're going to try to like conquer a country or if he's just talking about the operations that Wagner already does in Africa. It's unclear. Uh, he also suggested that they might return to Ukraine at some point. He, he referred to what, at a time when they won't be asked to make an embarrassment of themselves, clearly a shot uh, at the Russian military higher-ups with which he's had myriad problems over the uh, the last while here. So this is it. I mean, this is where they were. So this is where Wagner's fighters and Prigozhin were supposed to wind up. They do appear to be there now. They're training already, it seems like. The Belarusian military, which is probably going to be their Wagner's main function for at least, you know, in the immediate future. There is a barracks facility not far from Minsk where the Belarusian government has, uh, that the Belarusian government has converted for use by Wagner. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Hopefully this means our long national nightmare is over and we can stop talking about the goddamn Wagner group. I don't think that's going to happen. I um, would really like it if it did, but okay. Let's stay in the region, Derek, and talk about the Ukraine war. Yes. Uh, the uh, There's a few minor developments. Uh, nothing major has happened here, again, to, to sort of break the status quo in this conflict. But the Ukrainian military did attack the Crimean Bridge, which is the bridge that goes across the Kerch Strait and links Crimea to Russia. On Monday, uh, that attack killed at least two people, civilians. The bridge itself is a supply route for the Russian military in southern Ukraine. So, you know, there there is some military, you know, it, it does, I, I think, would be considered a military target. But the attack itself doesn't seem to have done much damage to the rail line, the bridge's rail line, which is the key supply route. And even the, the roadway was apparently at least partially repaired because uh, within a few hours they were able to, to have cars moving along the bridge uh, again. The Russian military responded by bombarding, which it's done for three straight nights now, Odessa uh, and Mykolaiv, the two uh, cities in southern Ukraine. It, it, this may have been part of the reason I... I, I tend to doubt this, but it, it's been sort of speculated that part of the reasons the Russians finally threw up their hands about the Black Sea Grain Initiative on Monday was because of this attack. Their grievances are long-term, have been long-standing, so 
uh, I'm not sure how much uh, weight to give that, but but it is kind of uh, a consideration. Now, in terms of uh, on the ground, the Russian military has been claiming some small advances in Kharkiv Oblast in uh, northeastern Ukraine. They're advancing toward a city, the city of Kupiansk, which is a, a rail hub and, and somewhat strategically important. They're not advancing quickly. This is like, you know, one day, uh, I think on uh, maybe Wednesday, they said they had advanced one kilometer along the front. Uh, so it's not, it's nothing major, but it is about the same pace that the Ukrainians are claiming uh, in their counteroffensive, which is mostly oriented toward the South. There have been some reports of disagreements between U.S. officials and Ukrainian officials, the U.S. officials pushing the Ukrainians to go faster, to commit more forces to what what they call combined arms operations along the front line to make uh, more dramatic advances. And the Ukrainians contending that they can't do that because they don't have the air cover. Uh, The Russians have air superiority here uh, easily. Uh, and so if they push faster or go further, they're leaving themselves very vulnerable to Russian airstrikes and they could get a lot of soldiers killed. Either way, it seems you know kind of unsustainable whether you continue plotting away at like a half a kilometer a day or, or you race out and get a bunch of people killed. One of the advisors to, to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky did say, uh, did allow on Wednesday in an interview with AFP that uh, they could make a more dramatic counteroffensive, but they need about 300 more tanks and 80 F-16s. I don't think they're going to get that uh, in the time frame that he might be thinking. So it sounds like they're going to continue with this very slow advance that's been very reliant on artillery. That leads to the question of how much longer can they sustain that uh, ammunition-wise. Uh, the West has been struggling to supply artillery at the rate the Ukrainian, or ammunition, I should say, at the rate the Ukrainians are using it. Uh, so that's a, that's a, another uh, concern here. If you're, uh, you know, sort of watching this counteroffensive go, and you're, you're, if you're in Washington or uh, I think in Kiev, how, how long can this can this continue? Let's talk about the NATO summit. Yes, uh, the NATO summit last week in Vilnius in Lithuania was supposed to provide some clarity for Ukraine's hopes to join NATO one day, either immediate membership, which was never realistic. Uh, or at least some sense that at this point or under these conditions, Ukraine will be admitted to NATO on some kind of fast track basis without having to to jump through the same hoops that other NATO member members have had to do. It did none of that. Uh, the alliance basically, despite some some ten- some internal tensions between uh, members, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, who are uh, keen to bring Ukraine in to the alliance and. Uh, the U.S. and Germany, which seem to be the two forces that are kind of putting the brakes on this this uh, this process, they did eventually coalesce around a statement that essentially, I think, just restated the alliance's position that someday we would maybe like to have Ukraine in NATO. We're not going to say when. We're not going to say how. Uh, it's just sort of like, yeah, it's 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 out there, which is the worst of all possible worlds, really, to just leave this vague. Uh, thing hanging out there, but that's that's where we stand. I think it's fine, Derek. Don't worry so much. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're right. I'm 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 starting to slip back. Yeah, my, and my and I should just update everyone. Derek's head is literally spinning counterclockwise, and every time he opens his <laughs> eyes, there are <laughs> blades of lasers that fly out of it. So he's doing a. Yep. He's fantastic. doing pretty good. 
Fantastic. Sorry to interrupt, Eric. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I, the other thing I would mention here is that Zelensky apparently got quite angry during the summer when he got a copy of the draft statement that they were planning to issue about Ukraine's potential membership and tweeted something, you know, about how outrageous this was or what an insult or whatever. Uh, and almost apparently got the got the alliance and, and led by the U.S., which was quite uh, irritated with this this tweet uh, to pull the statement and replace it with something even vaguer and you know sort of less prescriptive. So uh, I think that's interesting because we haven't seen a lot of indications of kind of backroom tension between the Ukrainians and their backers in the West. But I think they're there and they have to do to a large extent with Zelensky's sort of incessant demands for more, 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 which you can understand why he's doing that. He's fighting a war. He's trying to get uh, as much material as he can. He views this uh, as his way to pressure the West into giving more help. But it it seems to be grading on some NATO members, alliance members. So uh, I think that may be something to watch. There was talk about, you know, uh, expecting a little bit of gratitude from Zelensky and complaining about uh, that sort of thing. So it's just an interesting dynamic. Uh, that may become more uh, prevalent as the conflict continues. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Sweden and NATO. Yes. Uh, happy, happy day, I guess. Uh, Sweden, as, as people know, has been um, trying to get into NATO for several months now. The Turkish government in particular has been blocking the way, demanding a number of concessions from Sweden and possibly some concessions from other NATO members. Well, uh, so there was a real push in the days leading up to the Lithuania summit to try and get Turkey to finally relent and and agree that Sweden had done enough to merit uh, accession into NATO. The Turks were pushing back against this for, for, uh, you know, several days leading into the, the summit. And Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish president, even brought out a kind of the last minute, this real Hail Mary sort of thing where he said, basically, if you let Turkey into the European Union, we'll let Sweden into NATO, which is never going to happen. Turkey is never, uh, I would be shocked if Turkey ever got into the European Union, let alone while Erdogan is, uh, is in power. So that was that was a, a new constant, you know, new sort of uh, complication and sent people kind of reeling. But there was a meeting on Monday, the, the day, I, I believe the day before the summit was supposed to start, between Erdogan, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, and the Swedish Prime Minister, Ulf Christensen, after which, I don't know what they talked about, but Erdogan announced that he would ask the Turkish parliament to ratify Sweden's NATO membership. President Erdogan has agreed to forward the accession protocol for Sweden to the Grand National Assembly as soon as possible and work closely with the Assembly to ensure ratification. We may be approaching an end to this saga. However, uh, as a caveat, Erdogan is not going to ask Parliament to do this on a sped-up schedule, and the Turkish Parliament is in summer recess. It won't be back until October. So there are several weeks, a couple months, actually, before uh, the, par- the Turkish Parliament can actually take this up. There may be some committee work uh, that's done on it in the interim. But there's still a lot of time for Erdogan to kind of play around with, you know, maybe I'm rethinking things. Maybe I don't want to let Sweden in. Maybe I need more from somebody. Still a lot of time for some some wrenches to be thrown into this process. Uh, now, in terms of what Erdogan is getting in return, 
the Swedish government has agreed somewhat vaguely to address various Tur- various Turkish grievances around, for example, the activities of the Kurdistan Workers' Party uh, and the Fethullah Gulen organization in Sweden. Uh, Turkey labels both of these groups terrorists. He also appears to have gotten the quid pro quo that he's been after for modern U.S. modernized U.S. F-16s and F-16 modernization kits. This is a sale that's been frozen in Washington for months now. Uh, Erdogan had Erdogan and the Biden administration both had kind of started trying to link these two issues, and it seems like there's been some some move to unfreeze that sale uh, as a result of this decision. Although I think folks in Washington are waiting to see whether Sweden actually gets in before they go uh, full uh, full bore with the sale. The EU thing, as I mentioned, this sort of you know trade Turkey's EU membership for uh, Sweden's NATO membership uh, isn't going to happen. It was never going to happen. Erdogan knew it was never going to happen. But he does have a few things that he would want from the EU, like uh, a modernization uh, of a refurbishment of Turkey's trade agreement with the EU. Uh, he would like visa concessions for Turkish passport holders to be able to enter the EU uh, kind of free movement area. So he may get some something like that or you know, a couple of things, a couple of bones from the EU as well, but that remains to be seen. Let's end with a little new Cold War update, and let's start with John Kerry's trip to China. Yes, uh, the Biden administration's climate envoy did visit China this week, met with a number of senior Chinese officials. Uh, Wang Yi is sort of the godfather of the Chinese diplomatic corps of senior Chinese climate officials. He did not meet with Xi Jinping, the, the president of China, but he seems to have had a, a reasonably productive visit in the sense that they agreed to continue talking about the climate, about climate change and climate issues. Like the visits by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen over the last few weeks, the main goal here was just to kind of reopen contacts at high levels between the, the U.S. and Chinese governments that were closed down, especially after the you know awful, terrifying balloon of death fiasco. But um, you know, over the last few weeks, the, 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 or the last few months, they just hadn't been talking. So the goal was to sort of reopen these communications, and that does seem to have happened. We also uh, are apparently getting a, a new specialist on the job of improving U.S.-Chinese relations, none other than a friend of the pod, Henry Kissinger, who was in Beijing this week, also met with a number of senior Chinese officials who are apparently hoping that he can uh, kind of influence the Biden administration and U.S. policymakers to kind of moderate their China policy, and inexplicably, uh, people in Washington still listen to Henry Kissinger instead of, you know, arresting him. Oh, well, instead of listening to us. Instead of listening to us. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, but anyway, I think, you know, with Henry on the job, uh, you know, or at least the undead figure that was once Henry Kissinger, uh, I think, uh, you know, we're in good hands, obviously. Uh, all right, Derek, talk a little bit about the Taiwan VP coming to the United States. Yes, William Lai, the vice president of Taiwan, who is also considered the front runner to win next year's presidential election, is making a visit to the United States. Uh, he's doing it, as Taiwanese leaders always do, as a sort of like layover stop on, on the way somewhere else. But the you know the 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 tradition is for you know Taiwanese officials to have meetings with uh, U.S. officials. There are concerns, as there 
are anytime something like this happens that the Chinese government could retaliate against Taiwan. On, I believe, Wednesday, the, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. Uh, said that their, China is uh, prioritizing preventing Lai's visit uh, to the U.S. So I don't know what that means or what they're planning to do, but uh, it doesn't sound great. Uh, the U.S. and Taiwan are both, uh, you know, uh, kind of calling on China not to to do anything drastic here, but something again, something to to monitor uh, as it unfolds. Listeners, I regret to inform you, Derek is no longer on this plane of existence. Everyone, thank you for listening, <laughs> and we'll see you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.